Hey guys, Zach here, and I wanted to let you guys know that Fieldwork is brought to you in part by General Mills. General Mills is partnering with farmers and suppliers to advance regenerative ag practices on a million acres of farmland by 2030. Welcome. Yo, Zach. Huh? What? What? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Zach, it's Mitchell. What's up? Oh, hey, Mitch. Welcome back to another audio disaster known as Fieldwork. <laughs> hey, this is going to be great, though. I'm excited for today's episode. And uh, we're going to talk about some more farming stuff. We're going to talk about nutrient management. There you or go. how do we decide what to feed our plants? I like it. We can talk about fertility. We can bring in some experts here. We got some guys with us here today and talking about... Yeah, how do we do things better and use the nutrients and grow plants and not pollute water? Well, it's always a good thing to bring in the experts because we know we definitely are not that. We need help in more lots ways and than lots one. of help. There's a lot of stuff that really comes into play when we're talking about nutrient management. You know, crop selection, soil type, climate, hydrology lots of different things that that go into this topic well but i like this topic a lot that i think this is something that every single listener has to pay attention to yep you know when we were talking about conservation and whatnot on some of our other episodes that's a little different for each person but every farmer can improve their nutrient management we got a couple guys here in the studio with us to be able to help to talk about that brad carlson is the extension educator with the university of minnesota and uh, he's spent a lot of time out in the fields talking with guys about nutrient management and uh farmer mark bauer is down in southern minnesota thanks guys for coming in and joining us tell us about uh what you're seeing in your day-to-day work especially as it pertains to nutrient management so i'm an extension educator so the you know that's part of the land grant mission is to to do outreach to the people so i i uh, i teach uh, primarily farmers ag professionals uh, work in the ag industry so i do a lot of work with with uh, workshops and our nutrient management group on campus has a podcast that we talk about various uh, uh, crop production uh, topics related to to using fertilizer my signature program that I've been involved in now the last four years is called Nitrogen Smart, and it's working extensively with Minnesota corn growers on trying to be proactive on nitrogen management issues and issues related to water quality. Also with us, we've got Mark Bauer. Mark, you're a farmer from southern Minnesota, doing a lot to look at the economics of the nutrients on your farm and try to maximize profitability, not necessarily always highest yield, but what is the return on investment and how do you manage those nutrients to, to work with that? So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you've got going on in your farm. Well, my wife and my son and my daughter, we farm about uh, 1,600, 1,700 acres in that Northfield, Fairbolt area. Nutrient management in our operation, trying to basically it's the salt of the earth method of figuring out how little can I get by with. I've always experimented with ways to do less, and the natural one is to go to no-till. You know, what can I do with no-till? So 10 years' experience with that. Fundamentally, I suppose, from a theory standpoint, I should say that I am the ultimate tree hugger. I love the rivers. We spend all our free time on the waters, and it's a shame to see what's happening to them, but in reality... I, I, I don't do any of that stuff, and it, the fact of what we're doing to get efficient, if it's beneficial to the river, great, but that's not my driving force. My driving force is I want to make money. I want to be efficient. 
So when we talk about nutrient management and we talk about nitrogen, which I think I think we can probably all agree that when you're talking nutrient management, the first one you're probably going to look at, the big one is nitrogen. I mean, that is the big one. Uh, Brad, you've got the Nitrogen Smart Work the Nitrogen Smart Workshop, uh, where you go around and, and educate farmers on nitrogen. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and what exactly you think it is that farmers really need to understand about nitrogen and some of the key points? Well, a lot of it goes back to things they probably learned in a high school ag class or in a, in a college soils course if they if they had agriculture training in college uh, or maybe picked up somewhere else along the way too. But it gets into just simply how nitrogen behaves in the environment, the nitrogen cycle. So um, the, the transformation from our soil organic matter mineralizes uh, and, and uh, releases nitrogen into the soil. Our applied fertilizers will move from ammonium, which is an, a positive ion that doesn't move through the soil, and converts through microbial action into nitrate, which being negative uh, is not retained in the soil because our clay particles in the soil are also negative. So it's like having the you know two negative poles on a magnet; they push away, uh, and therefore can move with water. And so at that point, when you, if you start understanding uh, how nitrogen transforms in the soil and transforms in the environment as well as the implications of weather. So because it's microbial, it is dependent on temperature and time. Uh, and then, of course, all of our loss processes related to nitrogen are water-driven. So the, the two primary being either leaching it, which is moving it down through the soil profile, or denitrification, which happens under anaerobic conditions when the soil becomes completely saturated. It turns into N2 gas and just blows off into the atmosphere, which, of course, that's not an environmental contaminant. It's what we're breathing into our lungs right now, uh, provided that that conversion is complete. Uh, but but uh, obviously then you're dealing with, with uh, not having the nitrogen out there for growing the crop. And so a lot of our recommendations... They kind of look like one size fits all, when in reality, this is a very dynamic situation because we're dealing with the environment, we're dealing with biological systems. So what we try to stress to farmers is, if you come to the Nitrogen Smart Program, we're no longer telling you what to do. We're trying to give you enough information so you decide what to do, because that that management could be very pragmatic, could change a lot from one year to the next, depending on what the weather's been like. Uh, whether you've been able to get out and, and perform timely field operations the way you want to, whether things got delayed, and so forth. Um, plus, we're moving into a whole new world with technology and being, maybe being able to be prescriptive with nitrogen rates as far as variable rating across the landscape. A lot of that is going to happen in season. So that also kind of demands that you understand how nitrogen behaves in the environment. And so this really is a three-hour crash on understanding how nitrogen is in the environment so that you can uh, vary your management. Um, there's really two outcomes of this. Uh, one is, of course, is, is more profitability for the farm with, through either uh, increased yields or reduced inputs. But actually, our uni the University of Minnesota research shows that where we maximize profitability is also the point at which we minimize environmental loss. Uh, the key is really to be able to hit that sweet spot of exactly what that right rate is of applied nitrogen for the crop to use and then not over-apply. Because once we start over-applying, a lot of our research shows we actually leave it pound for pound just behind in the field, and then it's subject to get lost. And so that's that's kind of where we're at with that program. So I think that really ties in, you know, with, um, you know, maybe even backing up a little bit to the basics of a lot of this stuff, the four R's how that kind of ties into that, because that's really what you're talking about, right? You're talking about the four R's and then, you know, 
I think Mark, you're seeing how you're taking those four R's and, and shifting them to what works for you. Right. Right. One thing I'd like to add is he said, um, it's an on the go. It's a constant, it's a constant evaluation. You had said it changes seasonally. It changes every few days. Oh yeah. Uh, can. Yep. Right. You can have a, you can have, uh, you know, we're scheduled to get rain. You would just put down nitrate, nitrogen, you know, it, it's in the nitrate form already. And, you know, it should have been a nice inch and it ended up being three and a half, four inches. Now you got to sit down with the calculator and do math. How much was lost in that rain event? How, how am I going to make that up? You know, prior to the rain event, do you put on additional or do you have something in your management plan to Come back later. go, well, if this, you're not going to be subject to the weather so much that. If the rain weather goes against you in the next 10 days, two weeks, you've already got a backup plan that you have one more opportunity to mm-hmm. weather a little bit more or weather's been ideal, I'm going to back off. Well, that's a good idea. You know, on, on having that kind of backup plan and having multiple different options, I think is a good way to kind of go about thinking about this a little bit different. Thinking about my nutrient management program uh, might shift during the year. It will based shift. On weather. Yeah. And, and making sure that we have those options, though, and not all of our eggs in that one basket. Nitrogen is a difficult nutrient to manage because of the way the nitrogen cycle works and all of that. Right, and and you, you get back to your you know discussion about the four R's, which is really in sim- simply put, in Minnesota, it's our best management practices. It's just how we recommend applying fertilizer, what rate, and what type of fertilizer you're using, and w- when you apply it, and so forth. But but in the Nitrogen Smart program. Toward the end of it, we throw out what we call scenarios, which is some of these gray areas or or places where you have to engage your brain and start thinking about. And one of the scenarios I throw out to the attendees is, um, what if you've got, say, 2,000 acres that you want to fertilize, but you and and you know that ideally you'd like to apply your fertilizer in the spring uh, because it minimizes the chances of loss and it's more efficient and so forth. But logistically, you just find you can't you can't do that. You don't have enough time to apply to 2,000 acres before you're getting planting in the spring. So let's just say that you get you have to apply half of it in the fall, and then you have to apply half of it, and then you get to apply half of it in the spring. So how do you start prioritizing? Well, simply put, if you look at where you're, the reason to want to apply it in the spring is because you're afraid you're going to lose that nitrogen. So now just start evaluating your fields and what the potential for loss is. Coarse textured soils that have a lot of water running through those, places that are wet and saturated, we potentially have losses through denitrification and so forth. And we can start singling out where the places are where we probably would rather not apply in the fall. And maybe there's a lot of less risk places where we can do that application and 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 it's going to be just fine. And so uh, that's some of that, when I say pragmatic uh, management, that's really it right there. It's kind of deciding on a case-by-case basis. So when you're going through and having that conversation with farmers, is there tools that you can go through to be able to make those decisions on where do I need to really focus on the four R's, or does it really just have to happen on a on a case-by-case basis sitting down? And, I'll step and in on that just a little bit. I think the biggest tool is um, getting the end user to understand, like you had said, the different sources of nitrogen. Right. So the more educated they get, the more responsibility they can take on and the better decisions they can make at the moment. Because nitrogen really does become an at-the-moment deal. I've literally called Brad when we're out applying, you know, late-season nitrogen and chest-high corn and talking over, well, this is what I'm doing for rates. This is what we saw. This is what we started with. Here's the decision I made. And he's, you know, and, and 
do you think I'm validated or should I go up or should I go down? Did I miss something? Am I, am I leaving something out of the loop? So he's been a great mentor in that area um, to help make those decisions. Yeah, you know, in terms of, of tools, I, I, I do think it is more or less case by case, and each farmer uh, needs to work that out themselves. You know, the, the, the technical term that, that NRCS uses is comprehensive nutrient management planning, and, of course, that's ultimately your tool, developing your own plan for what you're going to do. But really what it amounts to on an individual farmer perspective is what's at your disposal. You know, where you're, where you're getting fertilizer from because in a lot of cases – you don't have the entire range of products that are out on the market available all from one location. The ability to apply it when you apply it and so forth is also going to be a little bit different from one place to the next. A lot of farmers have, have uh, acquired their own, their own ability to do side dressing or to do their own applications. Obviously, if you don't have that ability, now, you know, now you're also at the mercy of somebody else for what they have for application technology and timing and waiting in line for all of their customers and so forth. So it, it gets pretty individual as far as from one farmer to the next as far as what they actually can accomplish. And that's why, again, uh, we, tell, we tell farmers coming to that meeting, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're going to give you enough information. You can figure it out on your own. So when it comes to nitrogen management and trying to track what's going on on your own farm, now we have some, uh, when I say tools, in this case, I'm talking about software programs that can help us out a little bit in taking a look at what we may have for nitrogen on our farm. What's your opinion coming from a neutral source here? And both of you maybe have a lot of experience with this, but what are your opinions on how accurate some of that software is and and whether or not it's a realistic tool for me as a farmer? Yeah, I've done a fair amount of research on those products now over the last five or six years. And, um, they they seem to work fairly well as far as I can tell. Now, one of the things I think farmers tend to get wrong with respect to those programs, and I've had farmers tell me, well, we tried that and it didn't work. Well, well, how did it didn't work? Well, I got the same yield I got by not using it. And, you know, then I would say, well, you know, that program was intended to, this crop model was intended to give you a nitrogen recommendation. Right. They said they were going to accurately predict how much nitrogen you needed in the crop. It didn't say it was going to increase your yield. Right. And so what I tend to find with a lot of these programs is they actually give the recommendation of applying lower rates of nitrogen. And so, this is like a kind of a oh duh thing, but but seriously, if you're applying less nitrogen, you're never going to increase your yield. Right. Uh, you you can't you can't. I mean, it's just not it's not going to happen. So the idea is, if it's accurately recommending the correct amount of nitrogen and it happens to be less, you'll get the same yield. And right. so saying that it doesn't work, well, it does work if it tells you to apply less nitrogen and you get the same yield as applying more. Right. The the idea is a model of efficiency. Correct. You're not going for an increased yield on something like that, what you're going for is decreased inputs Correct. and the proper amount of inputs. Well, and there's a there's another thing that comes into that equation is we're just starting to understand the impact of soil health. You know, the healthier the soil gets, its ability to manufacture nitrogen in season is incredible if Mother Nature cooperates. It's back to the variable of Mother Nature, but what... I think the programs you're talking about, they're trying to stay a step ahead of the game, and I think their programs are based off of the scenario of the healthier soils. Well, well, they, they're trying to model the, the processes that we talked about in, in the soil. Mineralization of nitrogen from the organic matter, so predicting how much is being supplied 
naturally through the environment. Of course, they add the inputs that you apply as fertilizer. That's pretty simple. But then they're also trying to model the loss processes. So that's a factor of soil temperature, how saturated the soil is, potentially how much is moved through the soil profile and so forth. These are very difficult things. I mean, a lot of the research that's been done, not just in Minnesota, but across the Midwest, has found it very difficult to predict nitrogen mineralization out of soil organic matter. We know that your higher levels of organic matter, of course, have the ability to supply more nitrogen, uh, but it's very dynamic. And so... um, a lot of the, the crop model programs are kind of a black box. It's proprietary. They're not going to share that coding even with the university because it could get out and then they lose their, you know, their, their unique product. And so uh, we don't really know how exactly it is that they're predicting all those things. All we can do is actually use the programs and see how, uh, how well they perform. Now, the one aspect of these, though, that I find quite intriguing is the, uh, the big data component, that being them being able to track uh, an, an individual farmer's um, experience over a number of years, as well as lump in what's going on with the neighbors so that maybe they can start building a level of accuracy. You may not be able to scientifically know what's going on, but through anecdotally and and how it yielded and how things uh, performed and came down through the season, uh, it can start making local adjustments even to an individual farmer level that are fairly accurate. And and that's that's an intriguing aspect. Um, They tell us that that there is that component in these programs, and I guess I'm kind of waiting to see as we get really specific, yeah, six to eight years down the line of using them if they really start making those types of adjustments. I think one thing in the last comment you made that's really intriguing is the, the hypothesis that you're going to get a neighbor to tell you an honest yield. <laughs> you <laughs> have that issue too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> There's a variability there that I think is even more uh, uh, yeah. a, a wonder bug than good data, mother good data But a lot of these programs now. are just you're just inputting your your yield data, and they stay anonymous, and, and they do lump that data together. Oh, I mean. Yeah. Uh, some of the programs, you have the ability to opt out of that feature, but uh, quite frankly, if you're paying for it, you want the benefit from it. You may not feel like, well, I'm not sharing my data unless somebody buys it from me. Uh, but then again, you want other people's data you to help you, so right. that it kind of gets to this 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 give and take. Well, we're on this track. Is it okay if I ask him a question? Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're, I'm, we're I'm, all the farmers in this deal. We're just we're picking his brain and picking your brain here. So as we move forward and learn more about what the cover crops can do to the overall soil health. Is there some sort of research to determine healthier soils, I believe, can mineralize and manufacture more nitrogen than poorly managed soils, highly compacted. So is there an element that can be put out there as a university, land-grant universities researching those type of benefits from the use of cover crops? Yes, we are. In fact, uh, we've currently got a study using cover crops on the drainage plots at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Wasika. Um, and they're looking at using the cover crops for recovering 
uh, any unused fertilizer that's left at the end of the season, as well as we've got this whole issue of nitrogen mineralizing out of soil organic matter post-growing season. You know, if you think about this, most mostly corn black layers in southern Minnesota about Labor Day, and microbial activity doesn't really shut down until the soil temperature gets down to about 50 degrees. The average day of that in Wasika is the 25th of October. So you're continuing to see nitrogen mineralizing out of soil organic matter for six or seven weeks after, after the crop is done picking up nitrogen. And our research has shown that as much as two-thirds of what we're losing through tile lines actually comes from this post uh, mineralized nitrogen uh, pool has nothing to do with how we're applying fertilizer. And so the extent to which cover crops are able to grow after that corn crop is done growing and actually arrest that in place, um, that uh, th that has some great potential. Now, not only to just simply uh, reduce the amount of nitrates running through the water, but if you're actually retaining that nitrogen because the cover crop picked it up, now you kill the cover crop next year, does that mean you can start back. crediting that nitrogen to what you're applying the following year? Exactly. Uh, and and that, that that is exactly the type of research we're doing. Again, though, that is also gets back to a year-to-year -year thing. You know, tell me if, how warm it is and how wet it is. Of course, if we get if you get a, a, a cereal rye crop out there and then the following summer is cool and dry, you know, you probably won't get a lot of release of that at all. Correct. You know, and, and so that that in and of itself is also going to require that we kind of keep track of how the, the climate uh, is affecting it. But cool and dry can also be a, a negative effect. It can make it difficult to manage your ammoniacal nitrogens, too. Uh, right. And, and, you know, and then, of course, the wild card and all this, we also have to acknowledge, and every farmer knows this, is um, based on what we get for weather, you know, we actually don't have as much yield potential some years. And so while we all would love to think we're all going to hit the high end every year, we know that some years don't, the, the weather doesn't give us a set of growing conditions to get there. And so then the, the question is, is can we adapt our management for when that's the case and just apply less and still do just as well? Well, it sounds like, Mark, you've done a lot of work on, on this, on figuring out what are those rates and whatnot. Maybe walk us through a little bit of that on what you've seen. It sounds like getting your soils to change and mineralizing more on their own. Something's happening. Right. The fundamental basics of what we've implemented on our farms, we stopped any plant we raise, whether it's a cover crop or corn or soybeans, we quit pulling the root mass out of the soil. Hmm. Anything we do as far as tillage, it's imperative that we leave that root mass intact. It's pure carbon. Anything we can do to, to raise the carbon levels of the soil, less carbon, you know. We use that plant as a carbon sink to harness car CO2 CO2 out of the out atmosphere, of the atmosphere and, yep. and sequester it into the soil. And the minute you do tillage, within 72 hours, it vapors back into the atmosphere. So we were taught by a mentor 15 years ago, you know, whatever you just because we were looking at, we were we were we're sketching, we're drawing, we're we're envisioning what the ideal strip till machine would look like, or the ideal tillage machine to honor certain golden rules. Well, what what is the primary golden rule in no till or strip till or vertical tillage? It's imperative that you leave the, the root mass intact. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just that simple. So we're sequestering more carbon. What's some of the values of carbon? What I was taught. Um a pound of carbon manages seven pounds of water. Mm. So anything you can do to increase carbon levels in the soil is going to help manage nitrogen because nitrogen not... It's going to be in that it, water. It, it, it fixes itself to water first. 
Well, and I, and I think maybe maybe Brad, we get into you on this that you know I've been doing a lot of this research. I I work with Dr. Rick Haney quite a bit on looking at building that carbon up, and the whole point there is that as you build carbon, you have the ability to hold and to cycle more nitrogen. It's that C to N ratio issues yes. that we need to be able to put more carbon back into our soils. Maybe you have some uh, info on where our carbon levels started, especially up here in Minnesota, are even higher than mine down in Iowa as far as where our carbon and our organic matter levels started when we started to farm in this area. Now we need to build those carbon levels back up. And I think as we build those carbon levels, we can hold more nitrogen, hold more water, like you pointed out as well, and thus then be able to reduce some of our synthetic input because we're getting the soil to function on its own. Yeah, we probably started about uh, the when the, the prairie was first uh, plowed, it was probably 12 to 14 percent and and probably organic matter yeah organic matter probably knocked down to about eight percent in about a year Mm. and then started a slow steady decline Uh, most of our soils across southern minnesota now are about three to four percent although interesting enough our at the research and outreach center in wasika it's it's uh, stayed in at about six percent uh so we actually are dealing and but but here's the here's the kicker on this so it's got six percent organic matter Yet we find at, at the Research and Outreach Center in Wasika, typically we end up needing higher nitrogen rates to, to maximize crop yields. Because you have all that added carbon, though, too. It that... could be, but I think it's also a factor of the clay loam soils. And so we have to acknowledge that there's you've got a heavier soil. It's colder, slower to, to release, slower to mineralize. Uh, as well as uh, enhanced loss processes. So when it stays saturated and you know, it gets wet and it just stays wet and sticky uh, for a couple of weeks, you're going to you're going to be denitrifying uh, nitrogen out of there. And so you know it's not a one size fits all. We can't just simply say, "Yep, you increase your your organic matter by three percent and just cut the amount of nitrogen you apply by thirty pounds." Uh, that's going to vary depending on the site. And I, sure. I couldn't agree with that more. Our soils on our farms are extremely variable. My organic matters go from one percent to eight percent. You know, so it, it's. What's right. some of your tips on how do you how do you figure that out? How do you figure out how much nitrogen then you need in those different scenarios? Process of t- trial and error. I started out with lots of uh, sulfate-based nitrogen available. We did a we did a lot of we did a lot of pork production. Okay. So we worked with them, and we found the sulfate-based nitrogens were most beneficial on our lower organic matter soils. It was a very, very stable source of nitrogen. So, and, Not and, to mention that you needed sulfur fertilizer. And, in and, those lower uh, organic matter soils, right. you needed sulfur yeah, too. Right. Yeah, but it's, there's no, I guess out of this, the one thing you're going to get is there's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no, it's trial and error. Um, I guess I probably... St- started over applying mm. i was just too high and we just started cutting back and cutting back and our what would some of that look like to put some number and we don't have to get too into it but just for reference for while striving for 220 bushel corn we're we were targeting commercial fertilizer to be up in that 1.2 1. 1. Yeah. 1.3 pounds per bushel expected yeah and within fields as as we started handling more of it ourselves we started dropping the rates down even if it was just for one round sure cut the rate and then you come back through with the yield monitor way wagon and you weigh it off going did i did i did i short myself sure so yeah. you're putting in your own little check strips and yes whatnot lots of that 
lots of that. Every year, I, I've been planting crops for almost 40 years now. You know, I started started young and, yeah. and always had a passion for it. But it was constantly checks, constantly checks, lots of checks, thousands of checks. Mm. Mark, Mark jokes about uh, him being one of the... Uh, the uh, few farmers that I actually have to get on their case to apply more nitrogen. So I, I, I think uh, where are you at right now for a lot of your nitrogen rates? Corn falling beans, you're what ninety, thereabouts. Yes, yes. Yeah. Per per bushel, our our goal is I'm trying to get six tenths of a pound of commercial nitrogen applied for bushel harvested, and you're not going to know that until you get to harvest. Does any of that change depending on uh, say organic versus synthetic fertilizers. Uh, I mean, organic versus synthetic nitrogen, and what you're using there. Does any of that goal change when you say six tenths of a pound? Yes, because you got to keep in mind with your organics. Again, they're sulfate based. We use quite a bit of turkey litter now, um, and depending on what Mother Nature deals you as far as soil temperatures, how soon does the soil warm up? How how frequent the rains are? Did you have excessive rains? How much of that sulfate base is going to be available the first year? So it's kind of it's kind of a guessing game, but primarily that six tenths is based on uh, commercial nitrogen that's applied. Sure, you know Mark uh, talked about trying to to target getting uh, six tenths of a of a pound of nitrogen per bushel produced, uh, and I think a lot of people, if they've not paid attention to this, you still got that stuck in your head that you need a pound or one point two pounds per bushel. Uh, the the truth of the matter is that there's actually been a, a trend line um, that's been going back now for decades on decreased amounts of nitrogen necessary per bushel produced. Now, some of this has probably been uh, because of, of uh, reduced amounts of protein in the grain, but that's not a component we're paid for. Um, yeah, we're not paid on the quality that, of that that's, grain. That's, that's exactly now. right. But actually, the trend line right now, if you look at it, is we're right around... Uh, statewide, we're at around seven tenths of a pound of nitrogen per bushel produced. And so when he says six tenths, that's really not that far off if you start adding in what he's getting from his mineralized sources. You know, as long as he's being very efficient with his application, you know, most most corn obviously it needs a, a, a some nitrogen at the time of germination and to get off uh, for early growth and it's very sensitive to the fact that the root system is very small and it's got to be pretty close to the roots but most uh, most nitrogen use isn't until we get to uh, you know depending on the year but roughly about the 10th of June yeah, you know putting on ears and right so fill, yeah. so you've got a lot of flexibility uh, the 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 closer you go to that time, the less chance there is to lose it. And then if you're going to be real prescriptive with your rates, um, that also gives you the ability to to flex and adjust if you think you need higher or lower rates, depending on how the year is shaking out. I would assume that uh, both of you have done a lot of work with uh, variable applications of, of nitrogen and split application stuff. Correct. Yeah. Is there a time... Uh, so I farm on pretty heavy clay soils, yep. high... Exchange capacity soils, which I know is an oversimplification of, of understanding how much nitrogen the soil can hold. But to give you an idea, I'm up in the mid to high 20s on my CEC numbers. Okay. Heavy clay soils, cold temperatures. Is there ever a time that you guys feel uh, putting on one application, the full application of nitrogen in one shot, is okay? No. Well, uh, I, we're gonna we're gonna disagree on this because the research at Waseca actually shows four out of five years. That's fine. Okay. Uh, and that's clay loam soils. And so 
um, the 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 key on that is so you've got the one out of five is is twenty percent having a loss or a reduction acceptable to you? Are you over fertilizing to compensate for that one out of five? Uh, right. Because that's an issue. Uh, but then the other part of that is can we pick those years out? Now the other part of that though is. Um, that's using, I guess, what I would consider to be a little bit higher rate. So when I talked a lot earlier in the, the podcast about how uh, most of our recommendations are based on encompassing most situations, mm-hmm. now if you're instead you're reducing your rates to, to really be a, a little more exact with your actual rate, now now you're getting into the territory where you may see a responsiveness to side dressing versus all pre-applying it because of lower rates. Um, that may that dynamic may change. That's really where Mark is at when he says no. If you're only applying 90 pounds to corn following beans, you're going to see a response to side dress um, in terms of it being a better application method way more often than if you're applying 120 or 140 because that extra amount of nitrogen gives you the the slough uh, to be able to have a bad year, lose some of it, and you never knew the difference. Mm-hmm. Now, the other aspect of that that's important to recognize if we're using variable rate nitrogen is, and you're trying to be prescriptive with that, and you're trying to change the amount of nitrogen that you're applying as you go across the field based on some factors, the further we get along in the growing season, the better idea we have on what those factors are, what our weather has been like, what the yield potential of right. that crop why, is like. Why limit yourself? Be like having, picking uh, your favorite football team because the quarterback, every every time he Pass the ball, he went for a Hail Mary. They don't win games that way. Why would you blow your total budget on one shot with all these variables ahead of you and your budget's already been spent? Right, when you don't necessarily know. Now, the one factor we haven't talked about, and you don't hear many people talk about this, late-season nitrogen application gives you the opportunity to evaluate the crop. What's your yield potential? Mm -hmm. What's your yield potential now for next year? ballpark what's your target like right now for me to say sitting sitting in the studio right now all i can do is give you a target sure yeah i mean i can say based off of history yes i mean on our good fields where we farm if we hit hit uh 190 or 200 i mean that's 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 we're going to be happy with that all right potential is much higher than that but this is how i look at it from the standpoint we scout extensively throughout the growing season if we have ideal planting conditions we have ideal emergence we have a great June. Good. We, we didn't. We didn't abuse it. We didn't beat up the plant from five-inch rainfalls coming towards the end of June. When I'm I'm getting up there on shoulder-high corn, we're we're evaluating the crop and we're going, geez, based on our P levels, our K levels, all the work we've done with balancing the the pH. We, uh, this hybrid here has the potential to do three three hundred and fifty bushel. Um, so six tenths per bushel of nitrogen, you blew your total budget early on, you have no plan for late season nitrogen application, you're going to say, well, okay, we'll see what happens, or you're going to go back in there and you're going to put some nitrogen on it. Give it the best chance of success. Right. We're going to manage this thing and we're going to give the highest probability of success. Are you using any, so one to maybe see on what are the specifics that you're using there to be able to help to make that decision? Are you using like um, any kind of tech tools or even an Excel spreadsheet or anything like that, or just kind of doing some quick math? No, leverage your agronomist. Get yeah. agronomists you work with that understand and know their hybrids they're working with. Um, you, you have a consultant that you work with, right? 
Yes, yes, and, yes. And, and having me on your speed dial. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. But to evaluate, to know your, to know your genetic potential. Um, every you had a great season, and the forecast, uh, weather forecast is getting more accurate. Five, six weeks out, we get into the third week of June. We get we get accurate weather forecast into the first week of uh, August. Mark and I were actually talking about this this morning. You know the extent to which we can start using those uh, the National Weather Service one month and three month forecasts uh, when we start getting to the point where um, we're going to make some decisions and say colder than normal, warmer than normal, wetter than normal, drier than normal. Can that actually start advising how we're going to make that last application if we're split applying? And and I and think we can. I, I think, think it's getting sure. better. Well, Mark and Brad, thank you guys for coming in. This has been a fun, this has been a great conversation. We're going to have more talks about nutrient management in the future. Uh, but for today, we're going to wrap this podcast up. I thank you guys again for coming in. Well, this has been fun. Really good conversation to have. And we'll keep on uh, digging into things here on the Fieldwork Podcast going forward. All right. Good luck. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having us. And thank you to all the people who helped make the Fieldwork podcast possible. Amy Scotchless-Cole, Annie Baxter, Dan Ackerman, Lauren Humpert, Todd Melby, Ayana Esters, Laura Doherty, and Dom DeFerio. And our theme song is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans. You can go to fieldworktalk.org to learn more about what we're up to. Also at Fieldwork Talk on Twitter and Facebook. And, uh, of course, you can have a conversation with Zach or myself on our personal Twitters as well. Um, we might have to just link those up, though, if you aren't good at spelling. Um, but it's at Farm Millennial and at Continuum Ag LLC. If you want to find us on our Twitter, hit us up there. If you like the show, it would be awesome to write a review on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. This has been another fun episode of the Fieldwork Podcast. Thank you for listening, and make sure you check out the rest of them. Am I good? I'm all good? God, okay, it's, it's on you. The best.